0: Earlier this year, Texas implemented a new policy.
1: The state's attorney general had found that allowing children to transition genders medically is a form of child abuse. And from here on out, investigators should look into any families who have trans kids and look to see if they're abusing their children by allowing them to transition.
0: That's Casey Parks. She covers gender and family issues for The Post. And recently, she started talking to one of the people responsible for carrying out this new mandate in Texas.
2: This has just gotten crazy, Casey. Honestly, just gotten—sort of the insane has become the inevitable.
0: That's Morgan Davis. When this change happened in Texas, he was working as an investigator for Child Protective Services.
1: So what that means is he—if someone reported child abuse, he would go out and investigate it.
0: The day after Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced this new policy about trans kids and their parents, Morgan's supervisor called him and said, we have the first case and your name is on it, which was complicated for Morgan because... About
2: the time I started as an investigator, I started transitioning.
1: His supervisor kind of eased into it with him because she knew that the year before... Morgan had come out as transgender. So she knew that investigating a family who has a trans kid was going to be really difficult for him. And so she told him,
2: I'll have one shot to ever do this, but I can recuse myself.
1: And I think he took like a long, deep breath and thought, do I want to do this? You know, this goes against everything that I believe. I really think this is evil. But if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. And he really thought... If he was the one who showed up to investigate a family, he could mitigate the situation. Like, he could make it better just by being himself. Like, he could go and say, I'm a trans man. I'm not here to harm you. And maybe he could make this horrific thing just a tiny
0: bit better. Morgan told his boss he would do it. I was told
2: that I would go into the home. I would assess it. I would come out and we'd be done. And that's not what happened.
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Friday, October 14th. Today, when a state decides that letting kids transition genders is child abuse, someone is responsible for looking into that. A person working for the state has to visit families, write up a report. So what happens when that person is trans himself? Casey spoke to my co host, Martine Powers.
3: So let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about how Morgan got to this point. Tell me more about him and his life, where he grew up, and how he found himself in this job in the first place.
1: Morgan is what I kind of think of as like the quintessential Southern gentleman.
2: And apologies, I didn't even ask your pronouns. Please excuse me. May I ask your pronouns?
1: Though I guess he would not have been seen that way for much of his life. He grew up in Austin, Texas. His family was really religious, and he has what I think of as kind of an innocent quality. Like, he says golly a lot, and at, <laughs> at one point in our conversation, he actually spelled out,
2: you know, S-E-X.
1: Rather than say the word, <laughs> but he's um, he's 53, and so that innocent quality sometimes has like a a boyishness to it that doesn't necessarily match his age, but I think he just kind of shelved his own feelings for a while. He lived basically as what he considered a tomboy for most of his life.
2: Somebody asked if I could send them a before picture. And he was like, that's not really a before picture. I mean, I I always look like I'm an 11 year old little boy.
1: But he knew that he was a guy. He just didn't feel like there were people who would support him. He didn't know any trans people. Most of the people in his life were really religious.
2: I came from a religious family. It would never have been an option.
1: And then a couple of years ago, his mother passed away, and then the pandemic came, and I think those two things together made him start to realize, okay, like, I actually want to be myself, I want to live as myself, and this is the time to do it.
2: I started in uh, kind of a, a turnover of life. My When she passed, it was kind of a new uh, new life.
1: He still kind of thought he would do this privately. Like, he told his bosses, like, I'm going to change. My appearance is going to change. My voice is going to change.
2: My program director and then my my unit knew and couldn't have been more, you know, just more accepting.
1: But he really didn't want to be out in the streets or anything. He just wanted to kind of quietly be himself.
3: And and tell me a little bit more about this job. Like, what drew him to the Department of Family and Protective Services? and, And why was this the kind of work that he wanted to do?
1: Before he had this job, he worked as a judicial aide and as a clerk in the court system that sees these cases. So he'd often see CPS cases come through the court system and he'd see these kids. And he noticed that a lot of the kids who came through actually were LGBTQ. And he thought, you know, maybe these people need an advocate who is like them. And like, I never had that kind of advocate. And I'd like to be that for young people.
2: It's just to have a friendly ear, a friendly voice. Uh, So it it, it sounds a little bit altruistic, but just that to be that voice I didn't have. Only because you couldn't. My generation, that was not even going to be a possibility.
1: He imagined that what he'd be doing is, let's say a neighbor or a relative or a teacher calls and says, I think this kid is being abused. But he would then step in, investigate that abuse. He would protect them by getting them out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, he'd be able to go in and say, you know, no abuse is happening.
3: And what are the challenges of doing a job like that? And, and what, what, what gets in the way of, of him kind of fulfilling that vision of, of stepping in to protect vulnerable children?
1: Well, it really struck me listening to him how intense this job is. He's often investigating sexual abuse or physical abuse or just all-out neglect and what that means is he really has to look very closely at that. Oftentimes he'd go to a kid's school and pull them out of class and ask them these questions.
2: Do you, you know, what's your favorite food? You know, who cooks? Who's the better cook, your mom or your dad? Who's I mean, kind of the reaching questions of, you know, do you have enough food to eat? Do you how are you disciplined?
1: The questions are pre-written, so he doesn't have a lot of leeway, and some of them are very intimate. I mean, you have to ask a child do you know where your genitals are? Has anyone touched them? And as I mentioned earlier, he's the kind of guy who spells out S-E-X. So he, I don't think he's that confident in asking those questions, but he knows that he has to ask them because that is what ultimately can protect children from abuse. It, you know, a lot of times that job had him going into really chaotic situations in the homes where maybe families would be physically fighting even as he showed up. And when he initially started, I think he said he would get maybe three new cases a week. But over the course of the last year, just a record number of people have been leaving the Department of Family and Protective Services. And they haven't been able to fill those positions. And so what that means is the investigators who remain have to do, you know, just a ton more work than they used to have.
2: What's sad about Texas right now is that it's 50 percent down personnel wise, 50 percent down and uh, the persons that are left are shouldering caseloads that are genuinely, genuinely impossible.
3: So on top of all of these kinds of cases that you described that Morgan and his colleagues were dealing with, you then had this new policy that got introduced by Governor Abbott that basically required them to investigate the families of young transgender people. Can you talk a little bit more about this policy where it came from, and and what the goal was there?
1: Well, a couple of states have tried passing laws that say that allowing a child to transition is child abuse. Texas actually tried twice in a previous session. They had a House bill and a Senate bill, and it failed. But the governor was not daunted by the failure of the legislative process. He went on a radio show down there, and he said, that he had come up with a solution to what he considered the problem of children transitioning.
3: I have another way of achieving the exact same thing, Uh, and uh, it's about a finished product as we speak right now and may be announced as soon as this week.
1: The Attorney General looked at existing state law and decided that allowing your child to transition either using puberty blockers or cross hormones or surgeries, all of that, he says, counts as child abuse under existing law. So what that means is, according to the attorney general, they don't have to pass a bill because Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. law already follows that. Now, there are people who disagree with the attorney general, and that's being played out in the courts now, but that's essentially what the state's top lawyer says. And so the governor takes what that top lawyer says, and he basically forms that into a directive. Now, the people who were in CPS and these families are arguing that the governor and the attorney general kind of bypassed the legislative process by making their own new law. Mm -hmm. The governor would argue that he hasn't made a new law. He's just saying, hey, this is what the law already says. But essentially, the people who were in CPS felt like this is a new law. They had never investigated children, transgender children before. They had never investigated families before for allowing their kids to transition. And so for them, it felt like the governor has written a letter and all of a sudden our jobs have changed. We already have tons of actual legitimate child abuse that we're investigating. And now we need to go investigate families for basically taking their children to the doctor and allowing doctors to tell them how they should treat their kids.
3: Yeah. Well, and and how did Morgan specifically react to this? I mean, when he first heard about the fact that this directive was coming down, I mean, what did he have to say about it?
2: There's not a single person that didn't think this was was not a political stunt.
1: Well, he thought it was evil, but I think he thought this isn't really going to stick. We're not really going to have to do deep investigations of these people. Both the attorney general and the governor are up for re-election this fall. Governor Abbott is running against Beto O'Rourke, and as listeners might know, you know, Beto has gotten a lot of publicity and a lot of excitement over the years. And so Morgan thought, and he said many of his colleagues thought, the governor is using this to basically drum up the conservative base.
3: But I mean, for Morgan, it's one thing to kind of hear about this directive coming down and roll your eyes at what you think is the rationale or the or what what's what the behind the scenes rationale is for for um the governor making it happen but then this case actually comes to him and he will be the one doing the investigation i mean he is basically tasked with carrying out this policy from the governor so so how is he approaching that investigation like what did he think was going to happen
1: usually when he does an investigation because you're talking about child abuse here, they have to act fast. So say your neighbor calls and says, so-and-so is beating their child. Morgan's gonna show up within 24 hours to investigate it. Once you hear that a child is being abused, you can't dilly-dally, you can't just let them stay there. You've gotta find out what's happening. In this case, his boss has allowed him to set up an appointment, which is really unusual. So he found out about it on a Wednesday. He set an appointment for Friday. That left him Thursday to get ready. So what he basically did initially is he called people from like the pediatric associations, the psychological associations, just to find out everything that he could. Like, Is allowing a kid to transition, it, is there any world in which that could be child abuse? And they all basically told him, he said, what they later put out in their own press releases, which is, no, we do not believe this is child abuse.
2: And they said the complete opposite which is if a parent had the wherewithal to provide their child this therapy and this medication and didn't that's where they that's that would be the abuse
1: because you have such high rates of suicide ideation and suicidal attempts with trans children oftentimes these associations have found it's better to allow them to get puberty blockers or allow them to get therapy or allow them to get hormone therapy because that can save their lives
2: you know, one doctor was very stark and he was very honest. And I mean, and please know this is very stark terms, but this was a quote. He said, this therapy is the difference between an alive child and a dead child.
1: And so he came away from these conversations feeling like, okay, the simple fact of allowing a kid to pursue gender affirming care is not child abuse.
3: And I'm curious, when Morgan was going out to investigate this family, did they know that he is trans. Like, w- were they aware of that?
1: Yes. When he called to set up the appointment with the family that Thursday, he told the the mother, "I need to tell you something. I'm a trans man, and I've been assigned this case." And he told me that the two of them just cried on the phone after that. So they knew going into this that he was going to be a, a trans man. Um, they had two lawyers, one for the parents and one for the kid. Because the way these investigations go, you have to interview the child separate from their parents. And, uh, you know, usually that's so the kid can feel safe to confess if they're being abused. There's a funny little wrinkle. I mean, I think Austin is a relatively large city, but people kind of describe it as a small town in some way. He actually knew both of the lawyers the family had hired because he'd worked as a a clerk and a judicial aide. He'd seen them at the courthouse quite a bit before he was a CPS investigator. In fact, the lawyer the family hired to represent the child is a man who taught Morgan how to shave after he started testosterone. (laughs) So not only does he know him, they're like close. Mm -hmm. And the lawyer that the parents hired is a woman named Tracy Harding. And I talked to her on the phone and she told me when she heard it was going to be Morgan, she was initially like, okay, this is great. She's worked CPS cases for 25 years, and she told me one thing she's seen is Black families tend to do better with a Black investigator because there's, like, a level of understanding there. Same thing with Latino families and Latino investigators. Like, there's just a cultural competency that allows for a deeper understanding. And so she initially thought it's going to be the same thing with transgender people. Like, I'm not going to have to tell him how all of this works. Like, he's just going to get this family. But while he was there, the lawyer started to think the longer he was there, the more this kind of unease set in her, I think, where she realized they might trust him more because he's trans and that might be bad for our case. Mm -hmm. What if they trust him to the point that they tell him things they would not tell other investigators? What if they get so comfortable they let their guard down? Mm -hmm. Like this actually might not be good for us. And, you know, the lawyer's adores Morgan. Like when I called her out of the blue, I said, I'm I'm writing a story about Morgan Davis. She said, Oh, you mean the best person in the world? Like she respects (laughs) him, but it, you know, she, she actually walked him out of the house and said
2: that I shouldn't be there. That, um, they were very sweet. As you said, they were glad it was me, but they also said this was, this was just
1: wrong. And she, the lawyer told me over the course of that visit, she came to think, not only was the governor abusing and harming this family, the governor was abusing and harming Morgan.
3: Hmm. So, so how did the visit actually go? Like what happens when he shows up at the house?
1: Well, he, he described to me like this whole process of getting ready. Like he would usually wear like jeans and a button down for investigations, but he got himself basically like as fancy as possible. He's he called it his Sunday best. He put on a blazer and his favorite bow tie.
2: It's kind of a, a multicolored.
1: And he actually stopped and bought pastries because he thought, you know, maybe this will seem like no big deal. You know, I'm just coming for a visit.
2: There's a little place in Pflugerville down by where our office and, and they have really nice things. They have a and there was one that was gluten free. I had to throw it in.
1: Going into the house, he knew a couple of things. He knew that the family lived in a suburb outside of Austin. He knew that they had a teenage girl who had been assigned male at birth and they had allowed to live as a girl. He didn't know the full details of what medically she had or had not experienced. He just knew, you know, I'm going in to talk to a teenage girl.
2: You know, usually... As an investigator, you pretty know i mean you know pretty pretty well if you're that there's been abuse and neglect, and definitely in this that there was none
1: He could tell pretty much as soon as he got into the house that this was a different case than any other ones he'd investigated. I mentioned that he did a lot of his investigations at schools, but when he did go to people's homes, he told me that the homes tended to be chaotic, and this is kind of a small detail, but for him, it felt really telling when he got there the girl's parents sat on the couch next to each other. And he told me he had never seen that. In any of the investigations he's he's done, parents never sit together on the couch. It's often they don't sit on the couch at all. They're just kind of, you know, tornadoing through the living room. But they all sat together. He started off by asking the parents questions for about 20 minutes. And the lawyer advised them to not answer most of them. The first question he asked them is, will you sign a waiver so that I can look at your child's medical records? And they declined to do that. And he told me that he felt uh, instantly relieved. Like, if if they didn't turn over the medical records, he didn't have proof that they were allowing her to transition. And, like, that is what— Hmm.
3: So he actually didn't want that information? Like, I assume as an investigator, you, like, you want more documents or you want more—yeah, you you want you, you want more information. But in this case, he didn't want that.
1: Yeah, I think he, you know, essentially was hoping to work against his own self-interest as an investigator. He was thinking as a person, not as an investigator, I think. And as a person, he did not want them to be found guilty of child abuse.
2: When we were speaking to like what the parents could do, one of the situations my supervisor told me, she said, if it were me, I would make sure I didn't sign a release of information. And that way it would just shut down. You have no evidence to move forward.
1: And so, yeah, he w- he was relieved. and. Um, he thought, okay, I'm not going to have a case if if they won't give that to me. And then he asked if he could interview their child. And so they went to a different room They and he started asking her the questions. And the way these investigations go, they kind of start you off with the easier questions, like what are the chores you have to do? And then you lean into the questions about your body and about whether anyone has hurt you or not. And that questioning, he said, lasted about 20 minutes. And then he asked if he could look around the house.
2: They allowed me to look in the pantry because part of what we did is, you know, you look at, is there food? Is there, oh my gosh, this pantry. So, you know, this pantry was nice.
1: I think he was just really impressed by like, this is a family that has it together. He kept saying (laughs) the word impeccable to me. Uh
2: This child was impeccable. This home was impeccable.
1: And, you know... What he really felt is this is a family I would have wanted. Mm. This is the family I don't have now, you know, this amount of love and togetherness and you know, I think he it just made him really emotional. And then at the end of the tour, the girl looked at him and said, Do you want to see my room?
2: Like a little one does, like, hey, you want to see my room? Like, yeah. Um, just a little girl. trying Just wanted to show me her room.
1: Every time he told me this story, he started to cry. Because he was there to investigate her, to potentially take her away from her parents. All because she's being herself. And like any kid, she just wants to show him her room. Like, she's proud of the stuff in her room. It just, I think, really drove home for me. Like, this is a kid. With pure intentions. And... I'm here to potentially take her away from her family. I mean, whatever happens with the case, I think he knew this is going to stick with her for the rest of her life. And yet, she is treating me with kindness and, like, treating me like a visitor to this home, not as, like, an evil force. After they looked at her room, he asked if he could take a picture of her and the the point of that was to show that she was height and weight appropriate you know basically she's not being neglected or left to starve so they the family wanted to do it outside so he walked outside and he took the picture of her in front of the door and she she smiled for the picture and he in this kind of shy way he said and then you know he pressed click on his state issued phone and then he thought okay like We're done. My boss said, I just have to do this one interview and we can close it. So he told the family, like, let me just go outside for a second. I'm going to go call my boss. And in his heart, at that moment, he thought, I'm going to go tell her, this family is impeccable and we're going to close this case.
0: After the break, Casey tells Martine what happened next. We'll be right back.
3: So what happens when he goes outside to to call his boss and, and say what he'd seen at the house?
1: He kept his initial comments to his boss pretty short.
2: I said, this home is impeccable. This thing, I, I wish that every one of our children could be treated as this child, you know, the whole. And said, so, you know, can I go ahead and close?
1: And the supervisor said, there's been a change, basically. We're not going to be able to close the case.
2: They were going to keep it open and it would be staffed with a higher up than my pd which and at that point i think that was really the first red flag
1: now another cps supervisor actually testified in court that this was really unusual usually investigators do have that leeway to say there's no abuse and then we close it out at that point morgan had no idea when this case would close or how this would this case would close and it suddenly dawned on him that it didn't matter how nice or how trans he was, as he went into these homes, like he might not actually have any power here.
2: I think that night we knew this was turning into something else, because we really thought. I mean, I genuinely this is a political stunt. We go in, we prove them wrong, and we walk out. And that they were going to double down on a case that had no merit.
3: So, so then what happened after that? If if the case, if Morgan couldn't close the case alone by himself, then. What happened next?
1: He still had to file his report, so he typed up all of his notes and he uploaded them and he sent the picture. And then he basically just started hoping that someone would sue. You see this across the country as these anti-trans and anti-gay laws come up. Lobbying doesn't seem to sway lawmakers against this. The only thing that has worked is lawsuits.
3: Breaking tonight, a major court ruling over transgender care in Texas. An Austin judge blocking the state from investigating gender-confirming care for transgender youth
0: as child abuse. Harris County District Attorney joining a growing list of Texas prosecutors who are refusing any part of Governor Greg Abbott's latest directive targeting trans youth.
1: The ACLU and Lambda Legal have been helping families across the country. File for injunctions, and some of the laws have gotten stopped. All right, welcome back. Trans kids and their
0: families in the state of Texas are scoring a legal victory, um, a minor one, um, as an appeals court blocks some state-run investigations into families who provide gender affirming care to their transgender kids.
1: So he thought that's the only thing we can do here. Like, I'm not going to be able to close a case, so hopefully someone will sue and a judge will will stop, stop me from investigating, basically. Like, he's hoping someone will come in. And impede him. And a week after Governor Abbott wrote his letter, the First Family did sue.
3: And how did things progress from there? Like, what 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 did that lawsuit achieve?
1: So it went to um, Travis County District Court Judge. There was a little hearing where... The family testified undercover, and a CPS supervisor testified. And at the end, the judge granted the family an injunction, basically, a temporary reprieve where they can't be investigated. Now, there was some confusion at the time. This was way back in February and March. There was confusion as to whether her ruling only applied to this one family or whether it applied to all families. And that confusion has continued for much of the year. But basically, for most of this year, what's happened has been really piecemeal. Like, a judge would rule, but it would only protect one family, which meant that the state was free to continue opening new investigations, which parents say they have continued to do. I mean, just two weeks ago, a kid was pulled out of school in question without his mother for being trans.
3: And and what happened to this family whose house Morgan went to? Like, what was the resolution of their story? I mean, they obviously hoped that their case would be closed once Morgan showed up and looked around, and it sounds like that didn't happen immediately. Like, are they still under investigation?
1: According to their lawyer, their case is not closed. They have not had any resolution. The state told me that they only have four cases that are still open. So they they investigated 13 families, and they've closed, according to the state, nine of those. The lawyer for the family, Morgan Investigated, told me that she represents multiple cases and none of her cases have closed. She also told me she has not allowed another investigator to visit any of her families. So I think they're just kind of in liminal space. Like they're just waiting. No kids have been taken away from their families, but they're just kind of, I think, haunted by the possibility that someone could come back and investigate them again.
3: And what about Morgan? Where is he now?
1: About a week or two after he investigated that case, one of his colleagues quit in protest. She decided this was this letter was disgusting, that it was horrible to put kids through this process. The way she described it to me, the CPS process is always traumatizing for kids because you're threatening to take them away from their parents and even if your parents are evil to you, that can feel really scary. And you're asking them invasive questions. But she had always seen that as like a necessary evil to protect kids. But in this case, she felt like there was no good putting children through this. So she quit and she actually works part-time at a Target now. Like she was a supervisor. She had a good job. And Morgan was really inspired by her. And he initially thought like, should I follow her out the door? But that same feeling he had that first night was still with him where if I don't do this, someone else is going to do it and I want to make it as easy as possible. So he held on. And, you know, a lot of his other colleagues quit by March. I think everyone that was on his investigations unit had left. He was the only one remaining.
2: The people that I I was speaking to were quitting or resigning or resigning, I guess is a better word because they were frightened because as you know, I mean, if, if something were to happen, they didn't want it on their conscience. He's like, I know this. I, this is unconscionable. I know it. And if the only thing I can do is resign.
1: He told me his breaking point came in April. He said his supervisor came to him and told him that they had decided they would no longer consider gender dysphoria a medical diagnosis. Now, that is the diagnosis doctors will give you if your biological sex and your gender identity don't match up and you're experiencing some kind of psychological distress from that mismatch.
2: We were screenshotting the DSM file – I mean screenshotting doctor's notes, desperately trying to get – I mean I, I've never seen anything like this, Casey, where they just disregarded medical – I mean I, in any other case of abuse or neglect, we always depended on the doctors and the, to just be like, nope, nope.
1: So when they came and told him we're not going to consider that a medical diagnosis, even though the medical community considers that a diagnosis – it really, really sank into him. I'm not going to win here. There's nothing I can do. Around the same time, the Supreme Court ruled that one of these injunctions only applied to one family, not to the entire state. And he realized, like, we're just going to keep doing these investigations. And so he quit. And for a long time, he couldn't get a job.
2: I didn't realize that when you sort of throw a Molotov cocktail behind you, it people are, you know, people are you know, a little timid to hire you.
1: For a long time and still now, he would wake up crying, thinking about putting this family through this.
2: Casey, I've been in homes that will haunt me. And, but this one gives me nightmares.
1: And eventually he decided that he wanted to start speaking out. Now, you see lots of people speak out about these issues, but for him, it felt like a huge deal because he wanted to be private. He's a 53 year old guy. He did not consider himself an activist. Like, he just wanted to be a man in private, living his life. And he realized, like, if I'm going to speak out against this, like, I'm going to have to come out publicly. So he and a group of former colleagues all signed on to what's called an amicus brief. And that's basically like a legal letter that you attach to a lawsuit and you say, you know, we agree with this or we don't agree with this. And you can present some research to go with that. And in the Meekus brief, he basically came out as a transgender man. It says, Morgan Davis was a CPS investigator. Mr. Davis is an openly transgender man. And I think that was that was really huge for him, but it felt like, for him, the only amends he could make for having done the investigation. Since the story ran in the paper, Dozens of people have emailed Morgan, and a lot of them have told him they think he's a hero. And I think he's loath to accept that title because he still feels really guilty for what he did that night.
2: I've strived genuinely my entire life to do no harm. And that night, I did harm.
1: A lot of people tell him they have been really moved by his story and they're angry about what's happening, but they don't necessarily know what to do with that anger. And the thing that he tells people is... Texas has an election in a month. Both Governor Abbott and the Attorney General are up for re-election. So what that means is voters can decide whether they are energized by this policy, whether they're incensed by it, or maybe they don't care at all, but they will have their chance to decide whether they want to re-elect the politicians who put it into place.
3: Casey, thank you so much for this story.
1: Thanks for having me on and thanks for sharing Morgan's
0: story. Casey Parks covers gender and family issues for The Post. Renny Svernofsky produced this story. It was edited by Ariel Plotnick and mixed by Sean Carter. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. My co-host is Martine Powers. Our producers are... Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, and Rennie Svarnovsky. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The Post's director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Ella Heizadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.